Where Ideas Launch, the podcast for the sustainable innovator. We won't save the planet by recycling 50% of our waste. We save it by not creating waste. Season two goes heavily into circular business models and innovation while creating a space to discuss issues important to our society, like education. Join me and my guest as we explore and create pathways toward a future for the planet. Dr. Yanis Potochnik has been a prominent voice and strategist in the part and development of circular economic business principles in the EU and around the world. He's a former government minister of the Republic of Slovenia and became a member of the European Commission in May 2004. From 2010 to 2014, he took on a second mandate as member of the European Commission responsible for the environment. That mandate ended in 2014. He was also appointed in that year as the co-chair of the International Resource Panel hosted by the United Nations Environmental Programme. Dr. Potoshnik, welcome to Where Ideas Launch. It's a pleasure to be with you. My first question for you is, when are we going to get to the crux of this problem and turn this around? And what does it mean for us to continue in the part that we're on now in terms of our environment and how we're managing resources in our world? So the resource story, maybe I should start uh, giving you a picture of where we are standing and what are the challenges which we are facing. As you have mentioned, I'm currently co-chairing the International Resource Panel, and uh, we have just recently, a bit more than a year ago, released a global resource outlook, which is very comprehensively looking to the resource management. And some of the basic things which we have released with that report were that the global resource use has more than tripled in the last 50 years, that global material demand per capita grew from 7.4 tons in 1970 to 12.2 tons per capita in 2017, which means almost doubling in these 50 years. So Indeed, majority of the tripling I was talking before could be devoted to economic growth and to a lesser extent to the population growth, which is, of course, also important. And one of the interesting facts is that the material productivity on a global level, material productivity is actually the efficiency of the use of materials uh, comparing to the unit of GDP, has been growing steadily till the year 2000. And then it started on a global level to decline. And now the last few years, it's again stable. How is it possible that uh, material productivity is declining when we see it that it's actually increasing in all the countries around the world? Because we have seen certain shift of the production from countries which were more resource efficient, like European Union, Japan, uh, to the countries which were less resource efficient, like, for example, Indonesia, China, uh, India, and so on. So uh, we currently actually need more resources or more materials per, per unit of GDP than we have had two decades ago, which is an interesting phenomenon. I'm not advocating that we should reshift the production. I'm just advocating that, of course, uh, it is important that we look at it from a kind of comprehensive lenses. When we have looked to environmental impacts in the value chain, in the resource extraction and processing phase alone, we have found out that 90% 
of global biodiversity loss, land-related, and water stress can be related to the use of the resources, in particular in this case, to the use of the biomass, more than 80%. And that 50% of global climate change impacts can also be explained through the environmental impacts in the resource extraction and processing phase. And even one third of the air pollution health impacts, which means that, for example, if you are buying your car, parking it for the whole life, you don't use it at all, you will already be causing one third of the pollution because the resources needs to be extracted and the car needs to be produced. And that production, it's actually causing and extraction, it's causing pollution too. If we add into that picture, then that the expected global population growth will be that according to estimates, we will be some 9.7 billion till mid of the century, which means that in one year, you have on the planet additional population of, of Germany or in four years, additional population of United States of America. And all that it's predominantly happening in least developed part of the world who has all the right to esteem to the same level of quality of life like we do enjoy in the Western part. That means that the pressure on the use of natural resources in the future will be enormous. So we certainly have, we need to, to certainly rethink in particular the countries in the, in the developed part of the world, how to reshape our economies so that they will be more sustainable and that we will better protect natural resources and that we will better treasure them. Uh, the Club of Rome has nicely said that we have moved from so-called empty world, which is dominated by labor and infrastructure to the full world where the human well-being is actually determined by the resource, natural resources and environmental things. So economic well-being in the future depends how we will treat natural resources and how well we will treat the environment. And I think uh, it is truly important in this context that we start rethinking the signals which we are sending to the markets because those signals in many cases are such that they are that we are telling to producers and consumers that we simply do not value natural resources, we don't protect them, and via that we are terribly indebting future generations. In terms of government's response to all of this, so we know that there are a number of initiatives across the EU, certainly, and even to some extent now in the US with the change of regime toward mm -hmm. looking at ways that we can optimize both the digital transformations that are taking place and to turn these into real solutions around, around circular economy and around building something more sustainable for our future. What do we do with the with the other situations where governments are not looking at this and where there's still this mentality of, of competitiveness without care for the environment. How do we shape that? Yeah, uh, when you are in politics, you learn very quickly that time is needed. You need a critical mass of understanding and critical mass of, uh, of support to certain things that they are basically becoming also the policy reality. So sometimes uh, you get frustrated because the things are turning slower than, and, and, and they are so common sense that you can't believe how this can happen. But again, it is, uh, it is based pretty much on quite a lot of stranded assets which we have developed. 
and uh, on the thinking which is not understanding very well yet the seriousness of the challenges which we are facing. And indeed, you are absolutely right. The governance matters. What we need to understand is that for the first time in the human history, we are the generation which is living in socio-ecological space of planetary scope. So we are so interconnected, interdependent, that our fragility is very high and which is raising also the importance of the uh, the, uh, our importance of our individual and collective responsibility. If we don't see that now in this post-COVID or COVID world still, then we uh, uh, surely have to be half blind. But the same story, it's also connected with the preservation of environment, in particular with the climate change. It's the same, only that, that it's a bit more distant and we don't see it so much from the from the closest we are seeing the COVID reality and that it's not so easy to gather this critical mass for the reaction. So for me, it was always the most important that in the governance, if we want to reach the right decisions that we have connected those who were responsible to solving the problems with those who were actually having the instruments in their hands. For example, I was in the European Commission responsible in second mandate for environment. And while the majority of the questions which I need to address were actually in the hands of my colleagues, in the colleagues which were responsible, I don't know, for transport, mobility, for the food system, uh, for housing system, and those who have the major impact and also economic system, of course, because the tools there are the strongest. So I needed to connect to them that they understood and support also the things which were basically connected with the questions I have to solve. And at the same time, I have to listen to them carefully because they have their own worries. Because you need to step also in their shoes and try to understand what is the best way that they can go through some of the difficult questions, but still in that, in that, uh, in that path, solve your questions also. And by the way, uh, the circular economy, which you mentioned, it's one of the typical examples because at least in the European perspective, since Europe is pretty vulnerable due to the import of many of the natural resources, which uh, uh, where, where we are net importers and also we are major net importers of energy, it means that we are relatively vulnerable in that area. And that's why saving resources, going to the circular economy logic story, it's uh, also a kind of a competitiveness issue, which is easier to be understood also for those who, who are responsible for the economic questions. So I think always in these dilemmas, it is, it is important to look through the natural resource optic. Why? Because natural resource management is a kind of a bridge between the economy where these are the most important competitiveness related costs, but the unsustainable and irrational irresponsible use of natural resources, it's the major reason that we have then, as a consequence, climate change, biodiversity loss, pollution, health implications. From a consumer perspective, I can imagine someone listening to this and saying to themselves, well, I'm doing my part. I'm recycling. So I'm not consuming as much. I'm doing all right. My car is parked up in the garage. I'm doing fine. What shift do we still need to make as consumers? What do you think the gap is on the consumer side? especially in the EU, because actually this is where we consume yeah. the most. I think first, uh, 
as you already mentioned, we have to do our part of the contribution. So behaving in a responsible way, it's in a way our obligation. It was before, but now it's even more visible than before. So for me, the most important part of that story is uh, actually getting consumers also on board through the market signals. Because uh, we live in market economies and uh, consumers and producers are meeting on the markets and market signals are, of course, very decisive in that how we behave. Until we are giving producers market signals which are basically saying, don't worry if you will destroy natural capital because you will not, it's not part of your cost structure and you will not have to pay for that. It's actually, you will create more profits because everything is quantity-based. More you produce, more resources you use, something which you, which you don't pay if you are destroying, higher is your profit. So if that is a signal to producers and then the signal to consumers, which you asked is, okay, if you want to have a food which is more environmentally friendly produced, which is more healthy for you, you will pay more. So, you know, this is not exactly what leads the whole society and economy in a sustainable future. And then since, this, since we see that problem, we try, since we are defending the public interest through the regulation, through the public funding, we try to remedy that kind of uh, situation. And what we get, I think it's a bit of confusion of producers and consumers on the markets. Yeah. because we get different kinds of signals from all the sides and we actually don't know how serious the things are and how we should actually behave. And that's why I firmly believe that while private sector, while the producers, of course, need to follow their private interests, the signals which they need to receive needs to send them in the direction that those signals will be allowed, aligned with the public interests, which then the governments and us as citizens want to defend. Until this is on contradiction, we have the problem. And I think this is a, a major thing on which, uh, on the top of all responsible behavior, we need to change. Because yeah. uh, you simply, we are simply as consumers too many times confused. Yeah. And uh, simply we are getting sometimes the signals which are not sending us in the right direction. That's what you say makes so much sense. And in terms of possibly even penalizing those producers who are not doing things that are sustainable in the way that we haven't done in the past. So, you know, we've talked about and I've listened to your talks, in, in fact, about the cost of natural capital and the fact that we don't assign a cost to it. What if mm -hmm. we did? And would that solve the problem? It would be an important part. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, some, that doesn't mean that, that I think that nature doesn't have intrinsic value. It has it. And uh, if we would not be as we are and humans have its good sides and also bad sides. And if we would care for those things in intrinsic way, that would be fine. But we have created a system which we call market economy, in which we function as producers and consumers, taking into account certain incentives which we are getting. And an incentive that this is not your cost, it's certainly not the best incentive as the history of last decades has very clearly proved. Yeah. 
So it's simply sending us in the wrong direction. I don't also like the idea of, of, of costing cost and, and putting the cost on nature. But if you don't do that, you don't value it. And we need to value this and protect because this is our obligation. We need to protect it, not only for future generations, which we normally talk, we need to protect it for ourselves already. Because if you look to the data, which are connected today with where climate, uh, uh, climate goes, where biodiversity goes, where pollution trends are, where, uh, uh, where the health implications are. If we just look to everything, what is happening around us, the conclusion that something is terribly wrong, it's not so difficult. So it is our moral obligation that we start valuing those things more better, that we integrate them in the system which is guiding our lives or change the system which is guiding our lives. What would you say is the responsibility of the bigger players in our market economy? So we talk about that top 0.01%. We talk about the significant billionaires in the tech space at, at this moment who are marshalling a lot of resource and can definitely do something about this. What is their responsibility, if any? That we have an absolutely unjust world. It's clear. And uh, I don't, I have the figures which are clearly showing that the distribution of income created, it's, uh, it's really worrying. And, uh, and uh, I have to be brutally clear in that. If we want to have any serious sustainability transition from environmental point of view, it will not be possible without in the first place looking and connecting it to the social story. We need to make, we need to get rid of some of inequalities which are existing and we need to make this world more just, fair, because the way how it's managed, it's simply causing so much of, uh, so much of uh, inequalities and unfairness that, uh, that it's practically impossible. If you, if you then start to talking about full cost system where we would have to treat some of the things, of course, in the first place, we have to take care that, that everybody has access to food. But if you have the income distribution as we have it, then of course you can't talk about that the price of the food is too low because you need in the first place to look of the accessibility to food. So you are in the vicious circle and this vicious circle can only be locked, unlocked if we start seriously and sincerely dealing with the social part of the questions. And I'm absolutely convinced that uh, that uh, the, the future transition, which we all talk about and which we all see as inevitable in a more sustainable society and economy will fly or fall on the social part of the story. My final comment is that we used to talk in economics when I first did economics about the, the battle between guns or decisions between guns and butter. Yeah. And now it's a decision between spaceships and butter. Um, <laughs> what, what, is your, what is your take on our current expeditions, for example, to Mars? There's a lot of theory behind that that makes it sound very logical that we would want to explore there and that we would want to potentially colonize Mars if we can find the right conditions, etc. 
What are your, your thoughts on that? <laughs> My thought is very simple. We have colonized Earth. Let's first take care for that before we start thinking of anything else. I'm not against exploring the universe because uh, it's actually the curiosity which should guide us. But uh, taking, but looking to an escape on Mars while not, uh, for not taking the responsibility for Earth, it's simply uh, a thought which will not convince me. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you today by Career Sketching with Catherine Ann Byam and the space where ideas launch. Career Sketching is a leadership development and coaching brand offering personalized career transition and transformation services. The space where ideas launch offers high performance group leadership coaching and strategy facilitation to businesses in the food and health sectors. To find out more, contact Catherine Ann Byam on LinkedIn.